the unveiling of the pictures this morning. What have you drawn? What colours are they? And let's have one big mass. Whoa! The unveiling. We've got a statue in the park. You've probably seen blue plaques on houses. Ships have names. All these things have been unveiled at some time. There's been a revealing. Wonder what's behind the curtain. And then suddenly, a member of the royal family tugs on a, a string and probably hopes deep down in their heart that it's going to open smoothly and they don't have to tug, tug, tug and the whole thing fall off. That would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? But a, an unveiling, a revealing what's behind. You go on holiday. You come back home. You meet up with friends or family. You unveil the photographs to show them, to give them a sense of your experience so that they can enter your experience and their experience becomes your experience. But when, when that lot come back from wherever they are this morning, there'll be a, a revealing an unveiling of the stuff that they've been up to. I hope there's a revealing of what God has been doing amongst them. I know when you come back off holiday and show the photographs, there's that, oh, really? Do we have to do this now? But for those who've been away and come back, let them, okay? Allow them that moment. Because it's really important to them, and actually it could be a real blessing to you to hear what they have to say, to, to share in the experiences that they've had, to allow them to, to unveil what's been occurring and reveal what they've seen and heard. But I didn't want you to miss out. I want you to have a, an unveiling moment, a revealing moment this morning, courtesy of Revelation the great revealing of Jesus Christ. Revelation is my post-Easter project. I am reading it. I am studying it. I am preaching on it. I am Bible study leading on it. I've even got my house groups to plough through it. That was greeted with enthusiasm when I first announced that. Because we're scared of this book, the last book of the Bible, but we would be nothing to be scared of other than the person it reveals, the fearsome Christ, is revealed in this exciting book. But we're afraid of it because it's full of symbols and songs and poetry and vision and images that we don't know and don't understand and aren't familiar with and can't comprehend. But this morning, I want to I do two things briefly, really. That is... Reveal and publicly confess my mild dyslexia by saying that we're going to look at ACB. I know it should be ABC, but it's going to be ACB. I'm finishing with one big main point, okay? So, A, apocalyptic. That's what this book is, apocalyptic. It starts off, the very first word, apocalypsis, 
of Jesus Christ, or from Jesus Christ, or about Jesus Christ. Well, all those things, and I'm a bit of a both-and person when you come to options, I can, I can never decide, and I've got to hedge my bets, and especially when it comes to biblical scholars. If one suggests this and one suggests that, I tend to say it's probably both then. And in this case, it's almost certainly everything we can think of because it's from Jesus, it's about Jesus, and it's for the glory of Jesus, this book of Revelation. Jesus is the sender and the center of this book. I wish I'd come up with that line myself, but that was from one of my members. I thought it was quite good. I nicked it, and I've given it to you. Jesus is the sender of this message and the center of this book. Apocalyptic. And yet apocalypse is something that we... We don't really understand that, you know, because the word is so, is so inappropriately used these days. You know, the, the explosion down in Port Talbot maybe two, three weeks ago at Tartar Steel, you know, there were, there were different images and the BBC and ITV managed to get down there and get, get hold of video footage, you know, and there were explosions and it was described as apocalyptic. Re really? Okay. I know what you mean when you use that word, but that's not what that word means. We use it of other things, whether it's terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka, devastating apocalypse, whether it's tragic and traumatic scenes that are coming out of Sudan at the moment, reaching us. Apocalypse. It's a, a revealing, an unveiling, but, but particularly of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let's hold that thought for a moment and pause while I ponder with you the way we go through life, the way we understand the world. Because we live in a Western liberal democracy, which gives us all sorts of wonderful freedoms. We have rights, we have votes, sometimes more than we want or wished we had but they're a privilege we have ownership we have the freedom of movement especially if you've got a little red document freedom of the press we can't imagine life without those things if all those things were taken away we would be completely disorientated we would literally be in another world because this is our world. And yet what Revelation does, what this book does, is take us to another world. Because it's slightly disturbing, occasionally disorientating, disconcerting sometimes, like entering another world, like entering Chad. We land in Chad, October 2017. God, where, where does the time go? We go and visit BMS work in Chad, and we land in a place that is so disorientated. You know, Steve? Yeah? You know, the temperature for a start, the, the culture, the practices, all the things that we're used to aren't there. We feel a bit lost. We feel a bit vulnerable. We feel a bit 
uncertain, unstable, unsure, perhaps a bit small. But the wonderful thing about this book, as you read it, I, I simply encourage people to read it. Not read about it. Don't read about it. You know, don't go on the internet and read stuff about Revelation. Just read the book. Because when you do, you find that we're not made to feel small or vulnerable, uncomfortable in a foreign land. But actually, we are drawn into the identity of God, and therefore we are lifted up. He draws us in, draws us up, and enables us to see that we are part, we, followers of Christ, the church of Christ, are part of something so much bigger than we ever realize. So that's apocalyptic. A, B, C, but I said I'd do it dyslexically. So C, the context of this is a, is a guy called John, the Apostle John probably, and he's been banished as an enemy of the state. Just think of that for a moment. Think of you as being somebody banished as an enemy of the state because of his witness to Christ. He's on an island in Patmos in exile, and he writes to seven churches scattered around Asia Minor. It's about 95, 96 AD. The Christians are under pressure, and yet many of them have been faithful. Some of these Christian believers reading this, receiving this, might have been Christians for 50 years, like some of you folks, for a long time. Faithful service. But in a situation whereby they feel under pressure, the sporadic persecution that was experienced by the first century Christians throughout Rome is perhaps illustrated in a letter that was sent from, from the provinces to the capital. A letter was received in Rome, and the, and the title of the letter was a question. It's a historical document. And it asked the question of the authorities, the governments, if you like, how should we torture the Christians better? It assumed they should be tortured. It assumed that was the right thing to do. But we want to do it well. So how, how do we do it? Because the problem with the Christians then was they were just stubborn, plain stubborn. And I bet you've met a few plain stubborn Christians before, haven't you? In fact, are you that plain stubborn Christian? <laughs> I hope not. But the Christians were plain and stubborn in the sense that when the local, local community wanted a, a public celebration, they were obliged to doff their cap to Caesar. They were obliged to recognize the Roman government, if you like. The civil authorities we put on a celebration, and everybody would have to acknowledge Caesar was Lord. You see, that's where the Christians had a problem. They not only did they feel uncomfortable about doing that, if they were true to their faith, they could not do that. And others would look at the Christians and go, I just don't know why they don't do it. Just do it, will you? You're so awkward, you people. Inflexible, obstinate. That's how the Christians were regarded. Because of their faithfulness to Christ. Which meant that they didn't have it easy. 
They were under pressure. They were sometimes fearful, occasionally confused, not sure what to do and how to respond, too often self-focused and self-protecting. And as I thought through those characteristics of those early Christians, occasionally fearful, sometimes confused, under pressure and self-protecting, I thought of you. And I thought of my church too. And I thought of lots of other churches I know that are just like that. Which means that this message is really for all churches in all places. Because we all have that experience. I've heard it said, you may have too, that that the book of Revelation is not for the faint-hearted. And I want to say that that is 100% wrong. This book is very much for the faint-hearted. It's for those who feel under pressure. It's for those who need courage and confidence, heart and hope. Which leads me to think that it might be for you, a book for you. So that's C, that's the context. It's an apocalyptic book about Jesus Christ. That's the context. And the B, well, the B is awesome here because it's in verse 3 and it's the first word of verse 3 and it's the word blessed. These people that I've just been describing, both then and us here and now, we are the blessed of God. Do, do you feel blessed this morning? I'm sure some of you do. Some of you have told me, told me, told me that you do. But all of you need to know that you are the blessed of God. That's what Jesus Christ thinks and says of you. This book is the most self-conscious book in the Bible because it's quite unapologetic about the positivity that it offers to the people of God. It's not a book to confuse. It's not a book to cause consternation. It's not like doing spiritual Sudoku. You know, you, you get the little thing and you take it home and you put it on the table and you get your pencil out and you, you try. Anybody into Sudoku? No? Hey, thankfully, I can't stand the stuff. I, if I, I, can I be passionate for a moment? I loathe it. I see people doing it and I just sort of stare and growl and think, what's the point? Sorry, I've upset probably one or two people here. But, uh, but, you know, but, but Revelation isn't like that. Revelation is a blessing to us. And a blessing to those who hear it, it says in verse 3, hear it, read it, and keep it. Which does mean that there's a bit of a challenge. The challenge to us, if you like, there is a demand on us, and the demand is to follow what it says, to do as it instructs. Which is true true of God and his word generally. If you don't have that humble willingness to obey him you don't get the blessings from him granted in his grace and goodness he'll still bless you but the blessings from obedience are so much more so there's a blessing right at the outset of this book even for those who are facing difficulties and challenging it's an apocalyptic book about jesus christ from a context of pressure and challenge 
and yet confirms the blessings of God. There's your ABC this morning. But I said I had one major point that I wanted to finish with. I didn't say how long that major point was, and I didn't say how long it would take me to finish. But it's in verses 4 to 8, and I'm not going to go through each of those verses, but you do need to come with me and look at these words or hear these words for a moment, because I I was sort of thrilled in a way, really. I didn't know this was happening, but the first song and hymn that we sang this morning, Holy, 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 Yeah, you see, that's a great song that connects with this passage. But it's got one fundamental fault with it. But it's one that is easy to miss or not spot. It doesn't say what Revelation says. The song, and Jane can check for me, uses the line, who was and is and is to come. Do you remember it? You probably know it. Who was and is and is to come. If you have got a Bible open in front of you, you will discover that that is not what it says. It says, verse 4, and if you need to be reminded, verse 8 as well. So it's twice. You really shouldn't miss it. The author really shouldn't get it wrong. It says, who is and who was and who is to come. Not who was and is and is to come, but who is. Is it, is it up there? Can you see it? Verse 4. Next one. Next one. Grace and, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. What, am I going to argue about a couple of words? Yes. Yes, I am going to argue over a few words this morning. I'm going to argue over them because... The way that they're written in Scripture is important. It's important because what this is saying is that primarily the Jesus who come, the Jesus who it reveals, is primarily with us. He is. Before he was, and he is to come. I still don't get it, you're thinking. Okay, let, let, let me put it in those terms. We expect, in the way we read things, in the way we understand the world, there to be a past, a present, and a future. And we always use that language, don't we? Past, present, and future. And we would argue, you know, what's the most important? But what's the most important here and now is the here and now, the present. And what Jesus wants to ensure that we get this morning is that he is with us in the present. Having been with us in the past and will be with us in the future. Yeah? The God who is with us is the message of this first part of Revelation. We don't just want to think about it historically. We want to think about it as a reality in the present. The God who comes to us in the present, here and now. When somebody comes, they come as a person. Not as a concept, not as an idea, not as a thought, but as a person. 
And that's the other thing you need to grasp. This coming of God here and now is in the person of Jesus Christ, not just the idea of a God. The person of Christ comes to us now. And when somebody comes to my house to do something, like the plumber comes to fix the washing machine or the decorator comes to paint the living room or something like that, what they do is they, they come with a purpose. They come with a task. They come with a job. They hopefully come with some tools as well. But Jesus, he just comes. Not with anything. He doesn't bring anything other than himself. Because that's all that's needed. He is sufficient. In fact, there's no greater purpose than coming himself. Not to do something for us, but to simply be with us. And what difference does this make? This, this idea that God comes in Jesus here and now. Well, the difference that it makes to John, the person who received this revelation, is that it led him to worship. That's the difference it makes. It leads to worship. Joyful worship directed to Jesus. Verse 5, he, he talks about the one who is faithful, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I was sitting in my study this morning before I came down here, and I was overwhelmed by that simple phrase, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. I didn't want to let it go. I wanted to keep hold of it. That as I came to Moriah this morning, I was coming in the name of the ruler of the kings of the earth. I was serving the ruler of the kings of the earth. I just It's more than I can cope with, really. The ruler of the kings of the earth. John is worshipping and acknowledging who Jesus is. But at the end of verse 4, we get the first mention in this book, and if you do choose to take up my mission task of just reading this book, in verse 4 you get the first mention of the throne of God in heaven. The symbol of majesty and power and authority and rule. Is it up there? The grace and peace to you from who is now and who was, yes, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits from the throne and from Jesus Christ, somebody else can explain that to you, who is the faithful, the witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Where, where is the throne of God? It's verse 4 reference. Oh, it is up there. Yes, sorry, I missed it. Ah, yes, there we go. There we go. The throne of God. The throne of majesty and power and authority and rule. We know thrones. We have thrones in our country. They're occasionally used. We know what a throne does and says. The throne of God is a massive encouragement to the people of God, especially those who feel under pressure, especially those of us. I include myself in this. I, maybe you include yourself in those who feel as if they're living lives that are a bit messy in a mixed-up world, facing pressures and challenges. A great encouragement that there is a throne in heaven. And since there is a throne in heaven, we can know and we can pray in confidence that God will hear our prayers. 
that his kingdom will come and his will be done. Because if this revelation is about anything, it's about what happens on earth as it is in heaven. And so continue to pray that prayer that God would do on earth what is in heaven and be inspired by Jesus.